Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview atheist writer John W. Loftus. What Christians believe today, if there is such a thing as a Christianity, is so much different than the Christians of the past that the Christians of today would have suffered under the office of the Inquisition. It's so far removed. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. John W. Loftus is a former Christian pastor with three master's degrees in philosophy and religion. His book, Why I Became an Atheist, has been hailed as one of the strongest atheist books available by atheists and Christian apologists alike. Today we'll discuss his latest book, The Christian Delusion. He also writes at debunkingchristianity.blogspot.com. John, welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here, Luke. I just want to add that I think what you're doing on uh, common sense atheism is uh, is really exciting. It's awesome, and I appreciate being here. Thanks. That's great. Well, John, I must say The Christian Delusion is kind of the book I'd been waiting for from the atheist community. First, I think it's great that you focus on the dominant religion of America, Christianity, because if you can explain to people why Christianity is bunk, it's not like they're going to say, oh, well, Christianity was wrong, I guess I'll become a Muslim. If if Christians can come to understand why their religion is false, they'll easily see why other religions are false, too. But writing a book specifically about Christianity makes it all the more potent to believers in America. And second, it seems like what you wanted to do is to put together a collection of the best short articles ever written on each subject. So you got an expert for each topic and had them cram the best of all their research into one tiny chapter with dozens of footnotes for further reading. So you've got an awesome short chapter on the cosmology of the Bible, an awesome short chapter on faith and cognitive science, an awesome short chapter on the morality of the God of the Bible, an awesome short chapter on the resurrection, and so on. Is that kind of what you were trying to do with the Christian delusion? Absolutely, and I'm humbled and happy to have been a part of this project. Uh, the authors that have written for the book are experts in what they uh, talk about, and I'm just so happy that um, that they wrote for it. The first chapter that you write in the book defends the outsider test for faith. What is the main idea there? Well, it's the idea that we were born to to believe what our parents and our culture taught us to believe. We were all raised as believers to some degree. Skepticism is not an inherited trait. It's something we have to learn. So, you know, if our parents told us that Santa Claus existed, then he existed until they said otherwise. If they had told us that Zeus existed, we would have believed them. But the problem is that when it comes to our parents telling us that uh, the Christian God or the Muslim God or the Mormon God or the Orthodox Jewish God uh, exists when they tell us that, uh, they never turn around in later years and say, oops, we were wrong, because they were taught that way from their parents and they believed it themselves. So since we are raised to believe uh, what we believe, and since skepticism is not an inherited trait, I wanted to come up with a test to find out wh- whether or not what we were taught to believe passes intellectual muster. And uh, I 
you know, blog about these sorts of topics every day and in the conversations that I've had, it just came up out of the blue. I decided, uh, based on some of the responses I was getting, that, hey, why don't you test your faith as an outsider does, you see. And uh, an outsider basically approaches all other religious faiths with skepticism. And um, I said, well, why don't you do that, you know, to your own faith? And if not, then you need to justify the double standard. You know, why do you treat your own religious inherited faith with kid gloves and uh, with um, a defensive posture, but you you know, criticize the other religious faiths with skepticism. So the basic premise of the outsider test for faith is to um, uh, other religions with the same, uh, treat your own religion with the same level of skepticism that you use to evaluate other religious faiths that you reject. Yeah, and I really like how you quoted Christian historian James McGrath, and it turns out that the outsider test for faith is really very similar to what James McGrath calls the golden rule approach to history, where, you know, if you want to be fair about things, then you ought to treat uh, other claims the same way that you want your claims to be treated, or vice versa. It's just applying the same standard to all different claims. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, Dr. McGrath so much because he does try to treat uh, his own faith with the same level of skepticism as he treats the, the faith that he rejects. And he wants to say, as I say, that we ought to treat them all fairly. I, I go beyond that a bit, really, because I, I'm not sure, given what David Eller wrote in, his, in the first chapter, uh, that because we don't actually see culture, we see with culture, whether we can actually have a neutral standpoint to evaluate the faith that was handed to us. So I'm not sure how one can evaluate all faith neutrally, I suppose. If someone can actually do that, then, the, then what McGrath says is, is good with me. I just don't think it's psychologically possible. I think that because we see with culture rather than actually look at culture, as Eller mentions. I think that we ought to have a measure of skepticism given the nature of religious faiths, how we first acquire them, you know, how we seek to defend them against contrary evidence. But yes, I, I uh, appreciate McGrath quite a bit. And what you're saying about seeing with culture, the image that comes to my mind is the, you know, the rose-colored glasses or the Christianity-colored glasses or the Islam-colored glasses or whatever. And it's almost as though, try as hard as we might, we can't quite take those glasses all the way just because of the way that human psychology is. And so we really have to be especially skeptical about the particular worldview that we were raised with. Is that kind of where that's coming from? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, skepticism is not an inherited trait. It's an acquired one. And given that and given the fact that, you know, we, we are raised with a culture and we happen to see what our culture wants us to see, because we know that's the case from psychological studies, sociological data, and anthropological studies, because we know that's what culture does to us, then we ought to be skeptical of what we were taught to believe, even though 
we can't see anything about what we believe to be skeptical about. Now about your outsider test for faith, this idea that we ought to examine our own worldview from the outsider's position of skepticism, well, what about people who convert away from the religion of their parents? Doesn't that show that they have examined their faith from the outside, and that's why they chose a different faith? Well, I, I think that with uh, Valerie Tirico's chapter and Jason Long's chapter, I, I don't think that we humans are all that rational uh, about these sorts of things. Uh, I think that sometimes we gravitate towards the most wonderful story there is, and I think Christianity actually does have the most wonderful story about a God who loves us enough to, to die for our, our sins, and it's got the biggest threat, at least one of the biggest threats, hell. So, so we're not really all that rational about evaluating these faiths, and, and so usually when someone gravitates from one faith to another, it's, it's usually within the same house, it's in-house sort of a debate. It'll switch from, say, a Methodist to a Lutheran or a Lutheran uh, to a Catholic, for instance. Uh, uh, th those faiths that they uh, come from didn't pass the outsider test for faith, and the faiths that they go to don't pass the outsider test for faith. Uh, that's what the outsider test for faith is uh, meant to do when seeking to switch to other different sex within your culture. Now, the problem, of course, is that America is a pluralistic culture. So you might be raised in a particular home. You might be homeschooled. You might even go to a Christian college of your denomination. So all you've ever heard of are of that particular denominational teachings. And then when you get into the world apart from those influences, you know, you might be like what the polls show us, that a lot of people are switching denominations in our American culture because people are treating religion like they treat food. You know, it's a variety is a spice of life. And if you can go to a church that has a warmer pew with better music and a better sermon that contains the same moral message, then why not? And so, yes, people are changing uh, denominations, uh, but it doesn't seem to me, one, that they pass the outsider test for faith when they do so, and two, they are still influenced by the American culture because the American culture is becoming more and more pluralistic uh, as we speak. So uh, until they actually uh, switch to a religion, if one can be found, that passes the outsider test for faith, then, you know, I'm not really impressed that they'd switch. Yeah, it seems like switching worldviews doesn't really say much about whether you've subjected a faith to critical examination. The psychological data and anthropological data that are talked about in other chapters seems to indicate that we almost never choose a worldview on the basis of rational, critical thought. And so that's a very special type of test that you can perform, and it's very rarely done, but it's certainly a test that you're saying should be done. Yeah, I, I found that your post about this book where you quoted Valerie Tirico's arguments, I found that to be insightful because I do agree with you, and I, I do think that even atheists uh, are not always rational. I mean, I might agree with them because we've arrived at the right conclusions, but when I listen to some of them anyway... Uh, I'm not sure they've done so for the reasons I have, and I, uh, and I may not actually be, you know, entirely reasonable or rational myself. That that's why um, the default position is agnosticism. It's uh, it's saying, you know, I don't really uh, know what to affirm about existence. I really don't know 
what the answers for existence are. Of course, in my case, agnosticism pushed me toward atheism. Now, doesn't that seem to indicate that the atheist should take the outsider test as well? After all, if you're born in Sweden or Vietnam, it's very likely you'll be an atheist. But of course, if you're born in Iran or Nigeria, then you'll almost certainly be religious. So shouldn't the atheist take the outsider test as well? Well, uh, yes, in a, in a way. I mean, in, in a way, that's why atheists are atheists in the first place, because we've subjected the claims that there are supernatural beings and search supernatural explanations. Uh, we, we've come to the conclusion one by one through a process of elimination that they don't have enough evidence for it. But, but, but when you're talking about atheism itself, uh, subjecting the view that, say, metaphysical naturalism is not the case. You know, I, I'm actually in favor of, of being skeptical of that view. I, I'm actually in favor of subjecting metaphysical naturalism to uh, doubts. You know, that, that's why I affirm <clears throat> that agnosticism is the default position. Now, I am a metaphysical naturalist because I do think that science leads us in that direction. Uh, I don't know that scientists uh, can actually conclusively show uh, that there isn't some kind of supernatural force or being, you know, uh, but w it does seem to be a, a necessary hypothesis. So even if it is true, there is some kind of supernatural being, uh, he's irrelevant to our needs. You know, he can be safely ignored. Um, you know, he makes no difference at all in, in how we live our lives. And so, uh, yes, atheists should take, uh, you know, a skeptical approach to metaphysical naturalism, but there are different kinds of atheists, as you know. I mean, you know, there are Buddhists, you know, you know there are even Christian atheists. Bob Price is actually one of them. And what that means, you know, is, is different for different people. So atheists in general, it is not a worldview. It's a position about supernatural beings and supernatural entities. And once you eliminate those as a, a good explanations, and once you find out that those uh, beings don't have enough evidence for them, then, then all you're left with is what Carl Sagan said, you know, the cosmos, you know, uh, is all there is, was, or ever will be. This is all explained in a lot more detail in your chapter on the outsider test for faith in the Christian delusion. Another chapter you wrote in the book is entitled, What We've Got Here is a Failure to Communicate. What we've got here is... Failure to communicate. The basic argument is that if the Bible is supposed to be God's loving communication to his creatures, then he's a pretty bad communicator, which doesn't, <laughs> which doesn't fit with the idea of a perfect God. Can you flesh out this argument a bit for us? Actually, uh, I consider that my favorite chapter. I call it the uh, problem of miscommunication. Uh, Robert Ingersoll first uh, raised it, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche did, where what is there about this God who communicated in, in the Bible so ineffectively? I mean, he didn't communicate good morals. He didn't even communicate good doctrine to the church. Even an average person with average intelligence, knowing what we know from hindsight about how the Bible has been uh, used and or misused, to create the mayhem and suffering by the church and by Christian people down through the ages, then we would judge this God to be incompetent, uncaring, and stupid. <laughs> you know, that's the one thing that Christians don't really want to hear. Well, your God's stupid. 
<laughs> but that's what it leads me to think, you know, as we look through what the Bible says about slavery and women, you know, about religious freedom. Uh, Actor Avalos argues in his chapter prior to that one that one of the dominant themes uh, in the Bible is against religious freedom. And um, it seems like that's what caused a lot of mayhem down through the ages in the Christian church. Yeah, and I think some of the evidence for this is just the fact that there are thousands of theologies that quote scripture in defense of their doctrines. And the reason they can do that is because it says one thing here and it says a different thing there. And so depending on which verses you pay attention to, you can legitimately construct thousands of theologies. And that just doesn't seem like if God's perfect, then he could be at least as clear as some modern Christian writers who are way clearer than God on these issues. <laughs> it's patently obvious. I mean, there are several chapters in this book, maybe every single one of them, that would alone show Christianity to be a delusion. The last three chapters on morality and on Hitler and on science aren't necessarily ones that would debunk Christianity as a whole, but just certain aspects of it, and they do a wonderful job of it. But those three chapters, the ending ones, uh, still show the delusional thinking of Christian apologists. But this one on the failure to communicate is just, not, it should be non-controversial. Yeah. I mean, if a CEO had the same communicative skills as we see in the Bible from a supposedly omniscient God and or foreknowing God who could foreknow how his words would be misconstrued if that's what happened, uh, then you would think the CEO is to uh, be at least partially to blame for things like the Inquisition, the witch hunts, uh, you know, slavery. And, and even what I find most horrific of them all is that Christians themselves killed other Christians to the tune of 8 million people. Je Germany was almost decimated by the Thirty Years' War. Uh, Czechoslovakia suffered about a third of its population. And they were Calvinists against Catholics and Calvinists against Lutherans and Calvinists and Lutherans against Anabaptists, uh, all over misunderstanding things like you know, the priesthood of all believers, the nature of the Eucharistic wafer. I mean, there's all kinds of things that God could have said. And I'll give you one example here, although I mentioned several there in the chapter. If God had Jesus say, uh, when I'm speaking of the body and blood here, I'm not talking literally, folks. <laughs> I'm speaking metaphorically. That could have saved a lot of lives being lost. <laughs> and if God had known that, uh, had he not said that, or the, the vice versa, say, well, this really is literally my body and blood, whichever it was, if he had been more clear about what exactly he would was intending to say, there would be a whole lot less bloodshed among Christians themselves. <laughs> That's just one example. I mean, God turns out to be a miserable communicator. And if not, I mean, let's say he did. Well, where's the Holy Spirit? I mean, what promise that the Holy Spirit would illuminate believers into all truth? And, and there's a, a third thing he could have done. He could have created us differently so that we could have understood one another. But, but no, no, not, none of those obtained. <laughs> Yeah, that's, this is kind of related to another issue where I always say that if you're, well, along with David Hume, if you're going to infer God from supposed design in the universe, you're not going to 
infer the type of God that Christians want to believe in. You're going to infer some incredibly evil and incompetent God, or maybe a congress of gods that's always bickering and putting all kinds of ridiculous contrary things into creation. And kind of the same way, if you're going to infer God from the Bible, you would never infer a perfect God. You would infer a woefully incompetent God, or maybe some kind of congress of gods that just disagrees all over the place. Yeah, this God in the Bible, Yahweh in the Old Testament, is a tribal, barbaric God. And the people uh, who who wrote the Bible were superstitious and barbaric uh, people. I mean, anyone who can read Judges chapters 19 through 21, where there's horrific suffering caused by one, uh, several of the tribes of Israel against the Benjamites. Anyone can read that and say, well, you know what, these people were just as good or better than the surrounding tribes or that we should trust anything that they write, anything, is uh, is really diluted, which is the theme of the book. Well, your third chapter in the book is a new twist on the old, old problem of evil. What is the Darwinian problem of evil? It's the problem of animal suffering. I have a an online chapter, a bonus chapter at the website. You can get it off um, debunkingchristianity.blogspot.com. It'll link you right to it, uh, where I talk about the Bible and the treatment of animals. I mean, it, we don't really find the Bible showing much care for animals. And I'll leave it at that. I'll let the readers go go there to to find that. But but this chapter, the one in the book, is about animal suffering. I mean, uh, even as we speak, I mean, it's horrific. Uh, suffering is being caused by the law of predation, and uh, where you know lions are tearing up and, and eating uh, deer. You know, I saw a video where a crocodile came out of the water and grabbed a deer by the antlers, twisted and broke its neck, and dragged it into the waters where the uh, other crocodiles just ate it alive. I, I heard a story of where one wolf held a deer's head down on the ground while the other wolves were tearing out its insides. I mean, you've got parasites. I mean, you've got a horrific amount of animal suffering. Even just watching a spider attack or, or a, a mouse being attacked by a cat who just thinks of it as a plaything. I mean, there, there really is some horrific animal suffering there, and, and they do suffer. We know that by their heart rhythms and their breathing patterns. We know when they limp that they hurt. We know even by the very fact that they have hunger pains, which causes them to hunt and kill that they have pain. We know they suffer. And um, warm-blooded animals, they like to stay warm. Why? Because the cold hurts them. We, we know they suffer. There's a horrific amount of suffering there. And so the argument of that chapter, stemming from Charles Darwin, who first raised it, from whom I quote, uh, is uh, is incompatible with a perfectly good God. I argue uh, several different lines of argument against uh, attempts to show it's perfectly compatible. Right, and one Christian answer to the Darwinian problem of evil is that predation and pain only started when Adam and Eve supposedly ate the forbidden fruit a few thousand years ago, which... Oh my God, when people read this 500 years from now and they look back on a sentence like that, it'll just be like, oh my God, why are we even seriously talking about this? But anyway, what's your response to that option? Well, actually, yes, that is the, the traditional answer to church history. Uh, the, the problem is that as we progress in our thoughts and as we progress with science, we come to a different understanding of those sorts of things. And so Christians are routinely changing 
what they have previously believed, as I mentioned in my introduction. I mean, Christianity is like a chameleon. It changes with the surroundings. That every generation, there's, there's new arguments from culture and from skepticism and from science. If Christians go back into the Bible and reread and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we need to change what we believe. And so what, you, what Christians believe today, if there is such a thing as a Christianity, is so much different than the Christians of the past that the Christians of today would have suffered under the office of the Inquisition. It's so far removed. And the Christianity of the future would be so far removed as well. And it's no more better seen than in this issue here with uh, Adam and Eve and suffering. I mean, Christians today do not accept the literal accounts in, in uh, Genesis 1 through 11 uh, because of the onslaught of uh, evolutionary science. It's just patently stupid to continue to maintain that. So they, they reinvent and they come up with different sorts of answers, but still... Some Christians do think that there was an Adam and Eve and that um, because of their sin, uh, they caused um, all this animal suffering. Well, the most obvious question is, uh, what did the animals do wrong? <laughs> well, you know, what did they do wrong that would cause all this suffering upon them? You know, it makes no sense at all to answer the problem of animal suffering by saying that animal suffering is caused by Adam and Eve. You know, I just don't get it. it you know, it, not only is it scientifically illiterate, but it just doesn't make any sense uh, at all why they would, uh, why would they suffer. In fact, Paul Copan in his uh, book, That's Just Your Interpretation, he, he actually is inconsistent because he doesn't think humans evolved, but he does think that animals evolved, and he does find evidence for carnivorous behavior in the, in, in the Bible, in Psalm, I think, 104, in the last chapters of Job, there's, there's carnivorous behavior prior to the fall that was there in creation. So, you know, he's finding things there that uh, prove these traditionalists wrong based on the Bible itself. Well, another Christian answer to the Darwinian problem of evil is that Satan corrupted the animals prior to the evolution of humans, which was what C.S. Lewis thought. What's your response to that? Oh, well, you know, uh, so many different uh, responses. One, the concept of Satan is pure myth. I showed that in my book, Why I Became an Atheist, and I quoted some others who show uh, as well. It's, this whole concept is, is a myth used to explain why there was so much evil upon innocent people, specifically during uh, uh, the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, who sacrificed uh, a pig on an altar in um, the intertestamental period, but uh, Satan, the whole concept of Satan is a myth, uh, but uh, even if there was such a being, he's dumber than a box of rocks to have rebelled against an omnipotent being. Uh, I mean, just, just think about it, you know, I mean, if he really is, as Christians say he was, the Lucifer, the bright, shining light, uh, then he would actually have to be dumber than a box of rocks to rebel against God. Well, anyway, if this being existed, then it just moves the problem of evil back in time. Uh, for now, the question is, why didn't God stop Satan dead in his tracks? And I use an illustration in, in uh, that chapter. What would you think of a father who did not close his door to uh, a pack of wolves who were entering his house and allowed them to run freely in his house, killing 
well, four of his children maiming one other and killing his dog and cat. Uh, while he at, while he then all of a sudden picks up a shotgun and starts killing them one by one, you know, after the fact, you know, it just doesn't make it seem reasonable. And there's nothing praiseworthy about that father at all that he killed the wolves and saved w- one child and allowed one other one to be maimed. That's not praiseworthy, you see. So none of that makes sense. A fourth. Uh, answer is that God doesn't care at all if animals suffer horribly, and he can be perfectly good without caring about the mass suffering of billions of animals. How would you respond to that? Well, that I call that theological gerrymandering. Now, in political terms, of course, politicians gerrymander property so that they can get more votes from a particular territory by redrawing the districts. Well, you know, that's what Christians do. And to say that animals, uh, that God doesn't care about animals, I mean, you might as well say God doesn't have to care about human beings then, too. I mean, what, uh, because after all, we're a lower species than God is, just like animals are a lower species than uh, than we are. Once you say God doesn't care about animals, then you have no reason to suspect that God would care about human beings. Uh, and to, to admit that there's a part of creation who is suffering through billions of years of time, say God really just doesn't care about them or that he's using them for some purpose. It's just ludicrous. I mean, you you can't have a perfect God at that point. Yeah, I often say something like, if you think that it's good to allow animals or humans or whoever to suffer horribly, then I think we must just be using different words here. We're using the word good to mean totally different things. Exactly. It's, it's theological gerrymandering with the word good. And it applies to God no matter what he does, and that's all there is to it. Well, your last chapter in the book is called, At Best, Jesus Was a Failed Apocalyptic Prophet. What is that about? Well, it follows on the heels of Robert Price and Richard Carrier's excellent chapters about what we can know about Jesus and uh, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And by the way, Richard Carrier applies my outsider test for faith to the uh, claims of the resurrection and does a masterful job of it. My chapter follows after those two chapters, and they have already established you can't trust the reliability of the New Testament and its extraordinary claims. So what I'm doing in this follow-up chapter, the third chapter in that part, is I'm saying, well, let's just say, for instance, that the New Testament is reliable. Let's just say, even if, you know, if it's somewhat reliable, lowering the standards of it, even if it's somewhat reliable, let's see what the New Testament says about this Jesus, and let's see if we can disregard the claims to miracles and just evaluate the texts themselves and see what we find and see if, even if the New Testament is reliable, whether or not Christianity is tenable. And by that I mean uh, whether or not we can believe the picture of Jesus that is presented in the New Testament, or the Gospels in particular. And what I find is that uh, when you do that, you find that Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet uh, who predicted a doomsday end to the world that was to appear in his lifetime, sometime in his lifetime or in the disciples' lifetime. Uh, And that would be a cataclysmic event where the stars would fall from the sky and the earth would be burned up 
you know, every mountain would fall, and Son of Man would establish, uh, you know, a new kingdom on a new earth uh, where there was, was bliss and righteousness, you know. And that never happened. In fact, what we find is that the goalposts continue to get moved as the, the documents of the New Testament were, were, were written. Paul was clearly an apocalypse, expecting uh, the return of Jesus, uh, the, the return of, the, of Jesus. They, they interpreted the Son of Man teachings uh, to be of Jesus. In First Thessalonians uh, 4 and 5, the, the oldest document we have in the New Testament, he expected to see Jesus come uh, in, in the clouds. But as we look at further documents uh, about uh, these sorts of things and turning to Mark and Matthew, Luke and John, the book of Revelation, we find that as each document is written, we find the goalposts continue to get moved farther and farther and farther away. First, they thought it was going to happen at the, the destruction of Jerusalem. It didn't happen. And, and then they expected that it would come, say, in Nero's time. At each juncture along the way, they moved the goalposts. In fact, the Gospel of John doesn't even talk about the imminent return or coming of the Son of Man at all because... The last disciple had died, and uh, people had expected that the Son of Man would come by the time the last disciple had died. But since he hadn't died, they had to come up with an excuse for why Jesus hadn't come yet. The evidence is substantial that this is what apocalyptic doomsday prophets have all done, and Jesus' cult fits that uh, scenario to a T. And if Jesus was a failed apocalyptic prophet, then Christianity dies. It's falsified, because why would you believe a false prophet? But then if you want to claim that the Gospels and the New Testament is reliable, then that dies on the other horns of the dilemma. Either the New Testament is reliable, and uh, Jesus was a failed apocalyptic prophet, which destroys the faith, one or the other. Hi, this is Luke, just interrupting the interview for a moment. John got a bit tongue-tied here and he asked me to clarify. What he was trying to say is that either the New Testament is reliable and Jesus was a failed apocalyptic prophet, in which case Christianity is false, or else the New Testament isn't reliable and we have no reason to think that Christianity is true. So either way, it's pretty bad for Christianity and that's what he was trying to say right there. Well, it seems to me that you have encouraged people to criticize the articles in the book and you I have not oh you have not <laughs> no I don't like criticism you don't know that by now well sorry it, it <laughs> seems like you have a plan to respond to criticisms of the book the only kind of criticism I like Luke is unqualified praise you don't know you know that by now <laughs> <laughs> no I <laughs> yeah if people want to write honest critiques of anything I write, I always entertain those things. The respectful critiques, I always entertain them. I don't always respond, I don't always have the time, but yes, we have a website set up for that, and we're in the process of doing uh, you know, you know, that when these critiques uh, come in. I was talking with uh, Hector Avalos today, and he was telling me about a time where during the movie Expelled, he was uh, smeared uh, by the Christian right, and it took a lot of time to deal with that smear campaign. You know, and he says he expects it to get worse. Well, you know, I, I don't really relish that thought. I'd rather have an honest critique of things, but apparently that's what some people, uh, some Christians think that they uh, 
will have to do, and I expect he's correct about that. But the honest uh, reviews, I'm always willing to entertain where I'm wrong. Uh, so far, for the most part, all I've gotten is personal slams and nitpickers. <laughs> <laughs> for the most part. But, yeah, I mean, if that happens, then we will try to respond to it honestly and respectfully as well. Well, John, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure being here as well.